The culture for me is all about our caregivers being able to bring their best self to work. We don't want them to have to feel like they have to care more, go above and beyond. We want that part to be easy for them so they can actually just bring their whole self to work and do what they do best. And that for me is making it easy for them to do the right thing each and every day. Welcome to Humanizing Healthcare, where we talk with innovators and thought leaders who are working to make healthcare experiences more compassionate and rewarding for all. Our host is Chris Malone, founder of Fidelum Health and author of the award-winning book, The Human Brand, how we relate to people, products, and companies. Hi, I'm Chris Malone, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Thank you for joining us. Today's discussion also marks the second episode in our program partnership with Plaintree. So a warm welcome to listeners from the Plaintree community. For those of you who may not be familiar with them, Plaintree is a global not-for-profit organization dedicated to humanizing healthcare for everyone through excellence in person-centered care. So we have many shared aspirations. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Leslie Jureko, Cleveland Clinic's Chief Safety, Quality, and Experience Officer. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jureko. Nice to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Cleveland Clinic? It has kind of a unique combination of things included, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. So have the unique privilege to lead safety, quality, and patient experience for the Cleveland Clinic, large organization, and get to have um, wonderful teams at each of our sites of care across the globe. So is there a story you can share about how you came to work in healthcare or any memorable experiences that shaped your perspective on care? Sure, happy to. Uh, you know, I think we all in healthcare have some reason why we drive uh, into that, go through the years of studying to want to be at the bedside. And for me, it's really a story of kind of uh, uh, suffering um, in family members, but also uh, really great stories of watching healthcare uh, find healing in those family members. And It starts when I was 10 years old, and believe it or not, I have a 10-year-old daughter at home, and when I look at her, I can't believe that I went through this trauma when I was little, Um, and I'm sure it shaped who I am today as a physician and a physician leader, but when I was 10, I uh, was out on a bike ride with my friend, and um, like we all did back then, we didn't have phones, and I think they just told us, you know, come come home when it's getting dark out or come home by a certain time. And so they never really knew where we went. Um, My friend Kim and I went and got ice cream and um, we were at the ice cream um, place. And sure enough, her mom um, uh, drives up and says to me, Leslie, your father has been in a really terrible accident. And I remember like dropping my ice cream. And the first thing I said was, is he dead? For me, as a 10-year-old, it was a very binary. Is he alive or is he dead? And she said, it's very serious. We need to get in the car and and head over. And where his accident happened was um, about two and a half hours away from where we live. So we frantically, our family got in the car. My mom, my sister, and I, we had some other family members join us, and we raced over um, to the hospital we thought he was going to after his accident. Well, sure enough, it happened to be a foggy day, and he had to go to a local community hospital to be stabilized, and then was brought to the trauma center. So we actually uh, arrived to the hospital before he 
he was there at the main hospital for uh, care of his trauma. He was stabilized, but then they wanted to bring him and fly him to the main trauma center. It was too foggy. So he came slowly by um, ambulance. Now, I happened to be in the ambulance bay as a little girl when he was pulled uh, pulled up, the ambulance pulled up. I just actually went out with a family member to get a sweater because, of course, it was cold in the waiting room. And when the ambulance pulled up, he uh, was pulled out on the stretcher. And I went, ran up to him and his, you know, his face, he had one cut across his nose. He was alert, awake, conscious. And, um, you know, I, I grabbed for him, but he couldn't move his hands. He couldn't move his legs. He couldn't move his feet. He was completely paralyzed, a full quadriplegic from a broken uh, neck, severed spinal cord. And, but he could talk. And in that moment, he said to me, don't worry be happy. And back then that was the song of the year. Don't worry, be happy. If you remember that song in that moment, like my father, who should have been worried about himself and the fact that I'm sure he could was very, very scared, had had just a, a grace about him and that empathy about him to, to tell me that. Cause we love that song together. So fast forward, um, you know, he has multiple surgeries, a long rehab, nine months in either acute care or a post-acute rehab facility. My sister and mom cared for him. He lived 18 years, was a great member of society, he actually ran a business from his wheelchair, was a wonderful human being, but lots of ins and outs of health care. And I watched the suffering a quadriplegic man could have as he tried to raise his two daughters and be a family member and uh, contribute to society. And to fast forward a little bit um, more, my mom was also diagnosed with cancer as I was entering college. My father was still alive, needing care. My mother um, needed a stem cell transplant for cancer, multiple relapses, about a decade of complications. They both died in my 20s um, after a lot of suffering. But what I saw was not only healthcare and how um, challenging it can be to navigate. Just absolutely challenging. I knew from a little girl I was going to go into healthcare. Like, I knew I had to fix this. I was just, I was just too, uh, I don't know if it was frustrated or it, it was like the Kindle inside me. I just wanted to make it better for somebody else. But I also saw, like, amazing caretakers. Some of my father's nurses are still part of our, like, broad family. They, ta- uh, they taught me so many things as I was a 10-year-old running around that hospital. Um, They taught me how to care. They taught me how to uh, uh, think outside yourself and and really lean in with empathy. Um, And we stayed close with them over the years. uh, And those relationships are very valuable to me. So that's a long story of like honoring my parents' suffering, um, honoring the way we went through that healthcare uh, system as a family, and then also the caregivers that cared for both of my parents and what they deserve, which is a better environment to care. Wow, that that's amazing. A powerful experience. Um, really traumatic, I'm sure, in, in many respects. And I'm sure it shaped you in a, an awful lot of ways. Now, I've also read that your kind of inspiration is unlocking the hidden potential on healthcare organizations. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. So, uh Cleveland Clinic, just a few stats. We're 20 plus hospitals. We have a global footprint. So we're in, uh, we opened in London. We've been in Abu Dhabi for a while. We have a footprint in Florida with five hospitals, many ambulatory sites, Northeast Ohio, of course. 
um, also Toronto and Las Vegas. So just a vast array. And there's 80,000 caregivers that work for us. And I love the idea of taking um, what caregivers come in with into healthcare, that passion to heal, but also the passion to improve someone's life in general and tapping into that. And I really feel how we anchor to do that is through psychological safety. And what I mean by that is I think these 80,000 caregivers truly do arrive with that passion and when they see something and they want to either say something or they want to fix something, if there's psychological safety, they will go above and beyond to do that. If there's not, they will. their mindset will be, why bother? Why bother going the extra mile, taking the extra step? It will either mean more work for me. I don't know how to do it. More hassle. I, I could, it could feel punitive. So for me, unlocking that culture of psychological safety then helps our caregivers shift their mindset to always wanting to speak up, always wanting to be improvement ambassadors. I just think uh, it's a huge loss to have 80,000 caregivers if they're not aligned around that purpose. And I love to unlock uh, that feeling for them that they can be part of something better and bigger. That's really powerful as well. It sounds like it really does start with the caregivers and the culture that they are brought together in and everything else is empowered or enabled by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The culture for, uh, for me is, is all about uh, our caregivers being able to bring the, their best self to work. And I, I think it's been said probably on this show and other, we don't want them to have to feel like they have to care more, go above and beyond jumping over the hurdles and extra hassles. We want that part to be easy for them. So they can actually just bring their whole self to work and do what they do best. And, and that, for me, is making it easy for them to do the right thing each and every day. You seem to have kind of a unique combination of responsibilities. Can you tell us about how quality, patient safety, and patient experience are intertwined at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. So at the Cleveland Clinic, we really do see everything as high-quality care. So if you don't have that great empathetic experience where you understood your plan of care and the communication was wonderful, then it's not high-quality care in a patient's perception. So we really combine our efforts around safety, quality, and patient experience together. In fact, it's structured together, so I lead all of those entities um, and across the enterprise, we have decentralized teams at each of our locations that live and breathe the, the local culture there, but they're connected um, to our central structure and we all drive the same strategy and tactics together. And then our goals. So we really focus on a few goals. And again, it's all combined for safety, quality, patient experience on a premise or a foundation of high reliability. So that promise to the patient each and every time we serve them, and that's around safe care. So preventing harm that reaches them in our complex system that could reach them, we wanna prevent that. Improving um, our outcomes for them or that typical quality of care, we wanna be the highest um, or serve the highest quality of care to our patients. And then um, preventing, of course, any other complications that can come uh, their way throughout their procedures or their care. And then finally, what we're measuring is a little bit of an atypical patient experience metric. We're measuring ease to get care. I think there's a lot of suffering in waiting, a lot of psychological suffering and harm in that waiting. And so we work um, really hard, though it's a challenge, <laughs> definitely a challenge to um, increase our access to our patients. 
um, narrow that time to treat. So if they hear about a diagnosis or a concern, maybe on a scan, that we shorten that time to their end to either get their biopsy or a follow-up test. So all of those things around ease to get care at the Cleveland Clinic is something we're really focused on this year. And it's also on our CEO scorecard as well. I think that you made a really important point there and that this issue of time can really contribute to and amplify trauma and that it can be a, a psychological you know, pain point in addition to all the clinical you know, physical pain that patients or family members experience. And that that is something that I've often felt, you know, sometimes when I go to the doctor, you feel like the doctor or the, or the organization feels that my time is free to them. And so they're happy to use it in whatever way they choose without regard, you know, mm-hmm. to, to um, the impact it may have. But, you know, with all of that as context, you know, part of the inspiration for this program is that kind of over the last few years, it seems like there's been this growing interest in the idea that healthcare needs to become more human, perhaps even especially so since the pandemic. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on this. Does, does healthcare need to become more human in your uh, perspective? Absolutely. And I think we've been, I, I could say that since I was a little girl, um, you know, our business is the human body. It's the physiology and the psychology of the human body. And absolutely, we have to know our entire goal is to get our patients, um, that very being in front of us, either keep them healthy or if they're not healthy to get them healed and back healthy again, that's our business. Um, and so I really feel like we have to be centered around the needs of each individual human. I will tell you with healthcare and the way it's going, it's, it has been a challenge. You've seen, um, and everybody probably listening has seen, um, some large healthcare systems get bigger. It's it's a, a environment of big acquisitions and mergers, and, and what you see in that is a call to standardize care. And as a believer, and uh, absolutely, will study high reliability um, all day long around standardization and driving out variation. But there's an element of uh, you standardize where you can and you personalize everywhere else for the human. And that can get lost in healthcare, especially right now with this massive uh, desire to grow and be relevant. Um, And so what I see in some examples I see is that they'll try to standardize a process everywhere. And again, that's a beautiful thing. But each person comes in different with different needs, either it's psychosocial needs or different needs, feelings. And so to try to standardize and personalize is really the fine balance that we have to make. And I really feel like that helps with humanizing healthcare. And I'll give you one example we did here at the Cleveland Clinic, and it it finds that balance. So much of healthcare, when you do procedures, you go through a checklist, just like if you're an airline pilot, you go through a checklist before the procedure, usually during and after the procedure. And um, you can hear, they're usually called timeouts or universal protocols. So we were um, working through, we're always trying to improve ours, right, to drive reliability. And um, we decided that it was so structured and so processed because it's a checklist, right? And Mm -hmm. we wanted to spread it across the the enterprise and make sure everybody followed it. We lost the we lost the human in all of that, right? Do this, check this, uh, make sure this isn't expired. And so, what we added, and uh, just kudos to the team for pushing us on this. What we added was at the very beginning a moment to care, and that moment to care 
is an intentional part of the checklist. And what we're asking the care team to do there is very first thing before the patient goes to sleep for their procedure, or even if they're awake, to stop and ask the patient, talk to the patient about kind of what matters most to them. Ask Leslie about, does she have kids or where does she work or a moment? And just connect for a moment the entire care team to the patient and the patient back to the care team. And it truly is a moment of humanization that um, is a beautiful thing. And then they go right into the checklist, of course. But for a moment, everybody pauses and connects the purpose why they're there. And that's the patient. Excellent. Would it be an oversimplification to say that all of the clinical things we want to standardize, but all of the interpersonal things we want to personalize? Is it that simple or 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 not quite? You know, Chris, it's a it's a good thought. I think even some of the um uh personal communication things, though we can absolutely standardize. I'm sure you've heard that on the mm-hmm. show um before. You know, some of our we do um uh start with heart and then um ready to communicate very scripted, standardized kind of processes Mm. of how you should communicate, smile, connect to the patient, use empathy, apologize. So I think that can be standardized to a point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that patient is an N of one in front of us and they come with a whole array and it's not the same as the next patient. So that's the, the moment where we have to treat ourselves a little differently than the typical business that standardizes everywhere. Got it. And so these changes that you've made and kind of start with heart, how mm-hmm. has this impacted clinician engagement? I'm sure it has a very positive impact on the patient experience, but how sure. is that kind of having an impact on clinicians as well? Yeah, well, we've been teaching that for a long time. So communicate with heart, start with heart and ready to communicate are some of our kind of toolbox um communication um, skills uh, that we put together and we train all of our caregivers on it. Um We've evolved that over the years to align that, especially in the last year, to align that with high reliability. And um, the beauty of these skills is our caregivers can lean into them when they need them, um, if they need help with certain situations. But it also sets um, a tone for Cleveland Clinic of patients first communication. These, This is how we communicate with our patients. We do apologize. It's okay to apologize. We want you to smile. We want you to develop rapport with your patients. So we give that toolkit for our caregivers to feel like they can tap into. And how we evolved it with high reliability, we added in um, the safety skills that the, our, our uh, caregivers need to prevent errors reaching or defects reaching our patients. So now we really see high reliability is not only those typical skills you use to kind of uh, check a medication and uh, check this, but also the the communication skills are part of that. And those expectations of their behaviors and then tools that go along with those behaviors have been taught in the past year to all 80,000 of our caregivers Um, both clinical and non-clinical caregivers, really important piece there, non-clinical caregivers. They want to be part of this. High reliability expands into their world. Certainly high high expectations for communication when you look at our non-clinical caregivers as well. So we train everybody on those pieces and it's been great engagement. Uh, Chris, I'll add one more thing that we did that I encourage anyone listening that's trying to do something like this in their organization. We all know education is just a real starting point. So you can serve a module up to your caregivers, but um, that only takes you so far. Um, And so what we did, again, brilliant credit to the team, is we 
uh, started leader guided discussions. And every month we would teach a behavior around high reliability, whether it's um, preventing harm, a communication skill, that we would teach those tools that go with it. And then we'd have all of our leaders. We have about 4,000 leaders across Cleveland Clinic. We train them up uh, special for these leader guided discussions. Every month, they had to have a discussion with their teams. It was very much packaged for them around those behaviors and those tools. So it was not just an asynchronous learning on a module. It was a leader guided discussion that lasted 20 to 30 minutes on those topics every month. And here's also what we did. We had those leaders measured on it. So we had every caregiver say, yes, my leader had that conversation. And then they did an assessment of how that conversation went. Yes, it was important to me because I was able to connect to these high reliability tools. My leader taught me how important they are to use them in these situations. Those leader-guided discussions, when you talk about caregiver engagement, have been so powerful that we're continuing them this year. We finished the six-month um, uh, kind of course of them, and we're starting the next. We're going to do them every month this year on different parts of our values um, because it's been so powerful for that core management team to host these conversations. Wow. And I was going to ask you, how do you kind of populate and disseminate these concepts that are fairly complex at such a large organization? And it sounds like, you know, during the pandemic, in many organizations say, hey, we don't have the bandwidth or the staffing mm -hmm. level to send people off to training sessions. What you've right. done is you've brought these concepts in on a monthly basis and have leaders guiding those discussions that don't take people off the unit or away from right. their role mm -hmm. to kind of do that kind of development and training, you know, all in alignment with one. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a, a big idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been really surprised. And, and you know, we, we thought maybe we'd get 60, 70% compliance at the end of the month. If I had my dashboard, I'd show you it's 85, 90, 95% compliance where the caregiver said that their leader had their conversation with them. We made it easy, you know, QR code that the caregiver had the conversation. We packaged up all the tools for them. Um, and we also said, do it on your regular scheduled meetles, meetings or huddles. We're a big huddle. We have tiered huddles. And so they would use their huddle time to cascade the importance of these behaviors and tools. And it's been really great. Is it having a positive impact on engagement and retention? I know that many organizations are still struggling with nurse staffing and things of that nature. How is it working for the Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, our, you know, the good news is our retention has kind of le leveled out and improved. So happy about that. It's hard to say if it's one-to-one because -one we're doing so much. You know, we always say we care for our patients and our caregivers like family. And I truly believe we do. It's, it's impressive, not just through the pandemic, but what we do for our own caregivers. We really... Uh, lean in to treat them like a family member. And I think that helps greatly for retention and also engagement. I think when your leaders are having conversations with you about what matters most, I think the engagement is there. I do think it harkens back to psychological safety. Just having the conversation will open space for psychological safety. The key part of leader-guided discussions is that they're bi-directional. Um, so we really coach on that. And we ask that that went during the assessment that those caregivers tell us, you know, was it a bi-directional conversation? We have a lot of open-ended questions that the leader asks the caregiver and the caregivers are expected to speak up and talk about things. Um, so I do think it's helped. We haven't measured our engagement. We do a pulse survey once a year and we haven't measured it kind of since the six months. 
but I would imagine it would go up. It's hard to say if it's one to one because we're trying uh, so many different things right now. Yeah. You said something else really interesting is that's the, you think of the um, way you care for patients and uh, team members as family. Mm -hmm. And there are kind of widely varying views on that. You know, there are some people, you know, that, that kind of speak that same language and others say, no, your job is not a family. That's a task. You know, that's a, a different kind of thing. I, as you know, I'm a big believer in relationships, mm -hmm. not only in, in personal life, but in your professional life as well. And I imagine that those relationships that form as part of these leader guided discussions are part of what is enabling, you know, that Absolutely. engagement and that retention. Yeah. We, um, we've, uh, for a long time, and it's been led by our CEO, have always said, treat each other like family. And I, I, I think um, that means a lot when you're a leader saying that. We are such a high-performing culture, metric-driven, that we sometimes can forget to recognize all the wonderful things happening or to take care of each other as we drive to fix something else or drive to reach this outstanding performance. Um, and so I think that message around caring for each other like family, of course, care for our patients like family has been really powerful because on the other side, we're also saying, hit these metrics, be top decile. We are high performing. We are Cleveland Clinic. So it's been a nice balance um, on messaging for our caregivers. Excellent. Now, recognizing that there are many organizations that aspire to be like Cleveland Clinic, what suggestions do you have for patient experience leaders that are really hoping to align their clinical teams and ensure that everyone's pulling in the same direction to deliver better experiences and outcomes? Any kind of rules of thumb or places to start that you would suggest? Yeah, I think this is a, all of us that lead experience or safety quality experience are always trying to you know make sure we connect what we're trying to do as an enterprise that matters most to our patients all the way down to where our caregivers are at the front line. Um, we have a really, at the Cleveland Clinic, we have a really powerful improvement model um, where we try to teach our caregivers, um, our frontline staff, how to um, do those, you know, day-to-day -day improvements and, and use either a PDCA cycle or some type of improvement tool to make things better. But what we also found with our improvement model, with our goal setting over time is our caregivers were still arriving to the clinic or uh, the hospital or to their ambulatory um, surgical center, and they weren't quite sure what to do that day to improve this top-level patient experience or to improve something in the quality or safety realm. So over the last couple of years, we've been working really hard on those, I hate to call them process metrics, but those um, moments, maybe we call them that you come in today and if you do this, if you do, for example, a plan of care visit where you and the physician, so you as nurse and physician and care team come to the bedside every day and have a meaningful conversation with our patients and our families about their plan of care, you will help drive our likelihood to recommend as an organization, which of course drives our brand, which is trust. And it's a virtuous cycle to all things growth and profitability. Um, so we've been really working on today, work on your plan of care visits because your patients, we, we've, um, and kudos to Dr. Adrian Boise, who will be your guest next month on this podcast. Right. She had, she's just a visionary and patient experience, experience and she challenged the team. Every patient should have a plan of care visit with their physician and nurse and the care team 
every day in our hospital system. And that's how we care. That's our care model. We haven't arrived there yet. We've been measuring it at the CEO level for a few years now. And we're asking our patients to tell us, did their plan of care visit happen every day? And this past year, we asked them, so a patient report a metric, was it meaningful? Did it, was it helpful to you? So a, a more, uh, more quality of that visit. And we have a long way to go on, on both those, that they happen reliably. Because when they happen Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the whole week, patients are really happy. If they if we just do those plan of care visits on Monday, maybe we do kind of kind of one on Wednesday and Thursday, they're disappointed because they know our bar is set here. Um, so we've learned a lot going back to telling our caregivers, you know, today you don't worry about likelihood to recommend or all these metrics that float here. Today we need you to do this really well at the bedside. And that's been helpful for that engagement piece. It's not perfect, but we're trying much like everybody else. Well, that's great advice. And I understand that last year, Cleveland Clinic launched a new Cleveland Clinic Connected program, offering collaborative support to other hospitals and care providers to improve outcomes and experiences. How is that going? What are you learning from that process? Yeah, so the Cleveland Clinic Connected program is really open to uh, both global partners and national and the U.S. partners. And the idea is You know, we've been at this for a long time. We have a hundred year plus history, rich history of being a physician led, provider led organization, highly focused on safety, quality and patient experience. Let us help you. Don't don't recreate the wheel. Let us partner with you and let us help. And the mindset really is none of us should be competing on safety, quality, or patient experience. We should be doing it better together. We know today healthcare is not highly reliable there. There's too much harm. It's too expensive. Um, The quality of care is not where we want it to be. And so the approach is really let's share and partner. Now, and we're all over now. Uh, We've I've gone um, it, to many places, both um, Europe, Asia. It's been uh, really wonderful for us to develop some partnerships. And I'll tell you what we've learned is probably as much from them as they have from us as we share. You know, across the globe, there is so many different kind of payment models on how the money flows through healthcare and how um, different populations perceive health. And so we've learned a lot from them on how to think about value-based care, how to deliver our care differently. And so it's been a great start to Cleveland Clinic Connect. I'm really excited to see where that goes. Can you expand a little bit on your thinking on value-based care? You know, what um, are you seeing in the future for Cleveland Clinic in that regard, perhaps building on what you've learned from those other partners? Yeah. So value-based care as a experienced leader, quality leader, safety leader, we have to be in it. We have to understand it. One fifth of our GDP, of course, nationally is wrapped up into healthcare. And unfortunately, as much as we want our business to be about patient care, it will still follow the money. Um, Most of us work at a place that might be the largest employer in the state we work at, in the county for sure. And all of that, we can't shy away from understanding how to lower the cost of care because it impacts the affordability for our patients. And I might say that creating affordability is as much of an empathetic process as everything else we're trying to do as patient experience leaders. So I think thinking of value-based care, thinking of being the connector in our roles from the provider to the payer side understanding where they both could be aligned 
Um, usually they want to raise quality. Almost always they want the experience to be better and certainly want the cost to be lower. So there's a lot we could do. And I feel like safety quality patient experience leaders are that key person in between the payer and provider that can make that narrative come to life. Let's take a few questions from those listening remotely. We've got a few questions here. First from Gina Lehman. I love your efforts to improve ease to get care. I'm curious as to how you're measuring time to treat to focus your improvement efforts. Are you able to measure beyond your internal network patients? Great question. We were just talking about this measurement. I'll start with the last one, Gina. Um, Time to treat. Um, Where we do this well is our oncological service. So where there is either a new diagnosis of cancer and needing to get chemo or a concern for cancer and needing to get like a radiology study or biopsy done. I think we measure that well. It's interesting in our other global partners and also um, places uh, like uh, Abu Dhabi and London, they're held more accountable nationally to their time to treat measures. So we're learning a lot from them um, around transparency, around time to treat measures. And again, human suffering right in that time um, and, and, and preventable harm. Those days and minutes matter to our patients. So Mostly in our oncologic, of course, in our stroke and some of our ED measures, we measure it. Um, not much more transparent currently than within our walls and our system, um, but that's a great opportunity nationally for us to go. Where is that measure and where is it required for us to work together on improving that? So that's time to treat. Back to ease, how we measure ease to get care. We've been asking this since 2020 on our patient experience surveys that we send out. So we, you can add some questions, of course, to the typical subset of those um, inpatient patient experience. But we ask it from um, the surveys we send from our inpatients, from our ambulatory ra- uh, lab and radiology and our emergency department. Each of those surveys methodologies have that question about how easy it is to get care at the Cleveland Clinic. And so that's what we're trying to improve. We've got another question from Jonathan Recchi. A moment to care sounds so powerful. Great example of recognizing the human in every person. Is there another example of how the Cleveland Clinic goes above and beyond other healthcare providers in recognizing the patient as a whole mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritual person? I think there's many of different things. I'm trying to think of some that we've hardwired um, around our care one, which sounds, uh, as I'm thinking, which might sound a little uh, corporate, but one is absolutely access to uh, their medical record. So a couple of things that we do um, in many organizations do this, but one, we're finally all on the same instance of our Epic medical record. That's a big deal for patients. Mm-hmm. Um to have everywhere they go within our system, that same instance, and they can follow that along with, of course, their, um, their, my chart with their portal. The other thing we do, we release all metrics, right? Or sorry, all labs, radiology right away. There's a lot of, you know, debate on how good we've done that for a long time. We feel like empowerment of our patients with information is uh, respectful. And that's been our choice to always release everything in a timely manner. Um, so some of our, I think our processes around um, transparency and being um, and kind of digital access, I think have been uh, really, really good for our patients. And I love an empowered patient. They're the safest patient in our healthcare system because they have the most knowledge and they care the most about themselves. So um, that's really our mindset. 
Yeah, I think that's the future of technology is that the degree to which we can put administrative things you know, on the technology so that we don't have to spend the precious time we have between patient and care provider on that stuff. It should free up more time for the interpersonal emotional things in that relationship. We've got a question about leader guided discussions from Rutwa Naik. Are leader guided discussions done during staff meetings or by utilizing some other platform? Yeah, good question. It's both. Um, So those that have kind of uh, staff meetings um, and want to uh, intertwine it there, absolutely allowed to. Other um, things are done by huddles. We gave the leader, because we had the measurement uh, and kind of the loop accountability of them happening, we gave the leader some um, leeway of how, when and how they wanted to do it. They just had to have that conversation within the kind of that same month time span. So usually it's a huddle. Some leaders that their huddles are too short, they'll do aspects of it for five days in a row over a weekly huddle. Aspects of the discussion, they might take a tool, talk about it for five minutes. The next day they may take. So we really gave them some fluidity on that. Another question that we've been hearing more often each month, um, could you please discuss the involvement of the patient's family in experience improvement? And I want to give a shout out to a company called Q Rounds. They're just kind of starting, but... um, Hopefully you can find them. It's a really great idea. So one thing we've been challenged with as far as families is really the matching. So I talked to you about plan of care visits, Mm. physician, nurse, care team at the bedside with the patient and hopefully the family. You know, that's the moment everybody's waiting for in their hospitalization. Our patients will wait all morning long because they heard rounds would be in the morning. They don't take a shower. They wait. Their family member doesn't go to work or doesn't go down to the cafeteria to grab a coffee because the doctor is coming. And so what we're really trying to think through is now that we've established this is how we care, right? A team comes to the bedside every day and talks to our patients and they understand the plan of care. And of course, we want the families involved. Time transparency around that and how to do that. So our family members could get text um, and could join from work if they wanted to. And um, our patients, certainly the ones that are alert and able to, could get some awareness. Um, And it's a bit of a matching, right? Doctors are going to plan on coming to rounds. This is the order. He or she is going in. Here's how the nurse matches up. Oh, we need an interpreter. Let's match them up. Here, let's bring in the family. That, to me, is the next moment of Eureka, believe it or not. I know everybody else, Amazon's figured it out. DoorDash has figured that out. Healthcare's not figured that out yet, that time transparency. So Q-Rounds might help us. We're going to try to figure that out to bring the families involved. We think it's a huge component, especially on that day of transition of care if they're leaving our hospital. That is the most important plan of care visit, that day they leave. And having the family there as um, a, a key partner is important. Yeah, the plan of care sounds like a great innovation in terms of how you care. And so that's fantastic. The challenge, I suppose, is the coordination and the logistics associated with making that happen. Yeah, it's not that any of us don't want to do a plan of care visit. I'm speaking for me as a provider because I still see patients. It, it is a log, it's logistics. It's finding the right nurse and getting all together and then making sure you have the physical therapist there because their, their input is so important. So that's exactly what we're trying to solve for. Terrific. I've got time for just one more question for you. And it's my favorite at the end of every program. Do you have a favorite quote that you can share with us? And if so, why is it your favorite quote? I do. So lately, I don't know, I've been just excited about Dolly Parton, maybe because she's just fabulous and she just keeps going. 
So I found a quote from her lately, and it's the way I see it. If you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. So that's Dolly Parton. If you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. And I really liked that. And why does that have such meaning for you in particular? Because is it because we often want to avoid all the rain in, in our professional lives or our workplace, or we just have to kind of accept, you know, that, you know, the only way that that rainbow has as much meaning is, is when, you know, we've got to put, put up with some rain. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's healthcare is hard. It's really hard right now for all of us that work in it. Of course, it's hard for our patients that are suffering. And so in general, we, I think it's just thinking through, you just got to push through those rainy days and know that you can get to that rainbow and you can get to something better and improvement that inspires us all on why we do what we do in either healthcare leadership or in bedside care. Outstanding. Dr. Jurecko, we greatly appreciate your time and insight today. Thank you for contributing to our conversation on humanizing healthcare. You and your team are making great strides at the Cleveland Clinic, and we look forward to following more of your accomplishments in the future. To our listeners today, thank you for joining us as well. We hope you found this discussion informative and inspiring. So be sure to join us next month for our humanizing healthcare discussion with Dr. Adrian Boise, Chief Medical Officer for Qualtrics. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanizing Healthcare, please give it a rating, share it with others, and follow us at Fidelum Health on LinkedIn. And make sure you join us next time as we share more insights from another inspiring healthcare leader and innovator.